Well, we are uh, at New Life here in a study of the New Testament book of Romans. And so if you have your Bible or your Bible on device, you can go to Romans chapter 2. And I've got a sermon for you today titled, Let God Be God. Let's just say that together. Let God be God. That's good counsel for anybody, isn't it? Let God be God. (laughs) And I want to start with a story, if I could. And it's a story that Jesus himself once told. And it's It's very intriguing to me. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, This particular parable was about a dad who had two sons who both lived at home with him. So there was an older brother and a younger brother. And in the story, the younger brother was kind of a rebel type of kid. We know him as the prodigal son. And he was the kind of kid who, who chafed under authority, who longed for his freedom. And there came a day when he just grew so weary of living at home and having to obey all the house rules all the time that he decided that he just had enough of that. And so he went to his dad and he demanded from his father to be given his share of his future inheritance right then in cash so that he could leave home and head for the bright lights of the big city. And there he thought, I can finally be free of all of these restrictions that I have to live under. I can finally do whatever I want. No one's going to be telling me what to do anymore. So he made the demand of his father, and for some reason known only to to the dad, the dad did it. (laughs) He gave him the money. So the kid took off, and he was finally free to go and do his own thing. His older brother, though, was of a, a different mindset. Of course, he was the firstborn, right? The responsible firstborn in the family who dutifully went about his chores every day, did what he was told, and tried to obey his father in all things. And when Junior flew the coop, of course it had fallen on him to pick up the added burden of work left by his departed sibling, which he did. And so he picked up the slack, he worked hard, he faithfully served his dad in the family business right up until that day. When kid brother, humiliated now and having blown his fortune, finally, it says, came to his senses and repented of his foolish sin and came slinking back home. And if you know the story, you know the dad's response, right? When he looked out the window and saw his prodigal son shuffling up the walkway there, he was overcome with joy. He was giddy with delight. He actually did something that dignified older men in that day would never have done. He hiked up his robes and he sprinted out to meet his son, wrapped his arms around him, hugged him, and showered him with kisses. When that surprised kid started his rehearsed speech about not being worthy to be called his dad's son anymore, the dad said, oh, no, no, I'll have none of that. What did he do? Well, he got his son a brand new outfit to wear to replace those tattered and worn old rags that he was wearing. He brought him into the house. He gave him his room back, gave him his Xbox back, (laughs) gave him uh, some new sandals and a ring. He was so overjoyed at this occasion that he, he threw a lavish party to celebrate his son's homecoming. His prodigal had finally come home. But the older brother... When he found out about all this and when he heard all the commotion from the house and realized what was going on, the older brother became sour and angry. He couldn't believe what was happening. 
With the loud music blaring in the background and the party in full swing, he muttered, I'm not going in there. That's ridiculous. His dad came out to plead with him. Son, come in and join the celebration. He just glared at him. And in essence, he said, Dad, what is wrong with you? Junior here goes out and blows half of your estate in irresponsible living. And then when the money runs out, he's got the gall to show his face around here again. And you throw him a party? Are you nuts? And by the way, where's my party? I mean, what do you have to do to get a party thrown for you around here? You have to go out and ruin your life? Did you forget, Dad, that that he left and I stayed? I mean, I've been the responsible one. I've been the good kid. I've done everything you've asked. I've slaved away for you all these years. Not one time did I ever disobey a single one of your instructions, unlike that other son of yours. He's an idiot. Frankly, Dad... You're an idiot. I'll have nothing to do with this. And that's how Jesus ended the story, right there. With the older brother, you kind of see him standing outside, right? Arms folded, glaring at his dad, bitter and defiant. And of course, his dad with arms outstretched, pleading with his son, come in, son, come in, join the celebration. Kind of a weird ending. So what made Jesus tell this story? Well, it says he told it because of who was there, who was listening to him. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, tells us who was there. It says, the sinners were all gathered there around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there too. And they were muttering under their breath, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, speaking of Jesus. What's he doing hanging out with lowlifes like them? So do you see that? Two groups of people, two distinct groups of people were there with Jesus, and not by accident, two sons appear in this story that he told. The younger son, the prodigal, represented those sinners who were there, the pagan people who, despite their sinful lifestyle, always seemed to be drawn to Jesus. That's interesting. And then the older son in the story represented who? Those Pharisees, the religious people. Those who saw themselves as the good people, the upstanding, moral, upright citizens. And Jesus crafted this story and he told it the way that he did for the benefit of both of those groups. And of course, the dad in the story, the father, represents God, God the Father. And I'm so intrigued by this story and it it illustrates what I think is an eye-opening truth. And it's this, there is not just One way to be far from God, there are two ways to be far from God. There are actually two paths, two ways that people can and do take that will lead them far away from the Father. You say, what do you mean? Well, you can be a prodigal and be far from God, just like the younger brother. Or you can be a Pharisee, a religious person like the older brother, and be equally far from God. Maybe even farther. In our world today, many, many, many people fit the profile of the prodigal, right? The rebel. Like him, they too chafe under authority. They long to be released from all of the constrictions and constraints of authority in this life. They long to get out from, all, out from under all those suffocating restrictions. They want self-expression. They want personal autonomy. They just want to do their own thing and to hack with the consequences, kind of like that younger brother. 
These are the, the, the rule breakers, the nonconformists who think that life is going to be found in being totally free to do whatever they want to do. And just like the prodigal in the story, they often use other people to get what they want. Their motto is, I do my own thing, so deal with it. Theirs is the path of self-indulgence, self of pleasure-seeking, really of hedonism. And Jesus said, as long as they are in that state, just like the prodigal, they are far from the Father. But it's surprising for many people to discover from Jesus' story that there's actually another way to be far from God too, which is represented by the older brother. This is the way not of being a rebel, but of being religious. Not the way of rule breaking, but of rule keeping. This is not license, but legalism. Not immorality, but morality. Not casting off the law, but conforming your life to the law. And maybe it shocks you to hear that, but Jesus knew what he was talking about. These older brother types are just as far from God, just as distant from the Father as the rebels. Like the Pharisees, they tend to be smug and self-assured. They think they're much better off than those reprobates who are always going out screwing up their lives. And they believe that God owes them a party in life because of how good they've been. They're self-righteous, critical, judgmental. They give off an air of superiority. And they think, you know what? The world would just be a much better place if everyone was more like us. Now, I decided to retell this famous parable, this famous story from Jesus, because it applies perfectly to where we're at today in our study of the book of Romans. I mean, just think about it. Looking at Romans through the lens of this story of the two lost sons, we could say that Romans 1, which we finished up last week, described the younger brother types, right? The prodigals, the rebels. It portrayed the world of the pagans the pagan Gentiles, the self-indulgent rule-breakers who live for themselves and reject God and reject God's authority. That's Romans 1. But Romans 2, where we're landing today, kind of takes a turn because here now Paul describes older brother types, the religious folks who thought they were good with God and that God was good with them. This was the world not of the pagan Gentiles but of the religious Jews, the religious Jews, especially the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were the quintessential rule keepers of their day, right? In fact, they felt like there weren't enough rules, so they made up hundreds of their own rules. I call them the fraternity of the smug. And you know, I can speak with some authority on this topic because this was me. This was me, a rule keeper, a churchy, religious, older brother type. I mean, I was an older brother biologically, and I became an older brother in this sense. Growing up, I was the good kid who went to church every week, and I grew up in Southern California in the 60s and 70s, and I did not do a lot of the things that most of the kids growing up in Southern California in the 60s and 70s were doing. Because I didn't, you know what, I became kind of proud of that. It kind of became my identity, like who I was. And there was a time in my life when I'm ashamed to say I was a very condemning, 
judgmental person. I was a lot like those Pharisees. Even after surrendering my life to Jesus, I struggled with this for many years. In some ways, I'm still a recovering Pharisee. I'm Steve. I'm a recovering Pharisee. So back to Romans. This is really how this is laid out. Romans 1, the plight of the Gentile pagan world, full of younger brother types. Romans 2, the plight of the Jewish world, full of older brother types, the religious Pharisees. And both of them, Paul will show, in their state of despising God, are under his condemnation, under his judgment, and justly so. Unrepentant prodigals and unrepentant Pharisees are both far from God, distant from the Father, and both desperately need a Savior to rescue them from their sin and from the coming wrath of God against their sin. And I imagine that those self-righteous Pharisee types were shocked out of their gourd to hear this. They would have heard Romans 1 and what? They would have said, yeah! That's right. Go get him, Brother Paul. Preach it, brother. Tell him like it is, man. Those wicked reprobates deserve every drop of God's wrath that he's going to pour out on them. They would have been disgusted with all those worldly heathen mired in their filth. But now here, Paul not only includes them in his indictment, but he was also calling them hypocrites. In fact, Paul seemed to be saying they were even more guilty before God than those wretched pagans. How dare he say that? I think the Pharisees would have turned on him at this point in Romans. Now, for those of you who might be a little confused by what I'm saying so far, who are thinking, now wait a second, what's wrong with keeping the rules? I thought we were supposed to try to be good people who lived right and did the right things. What's wrong with that? If you're a little confused by what I've been saying, let me offer you what I believe is a biblically-based distinction for you to think about, okay? A contrast, really, between true Christians, true followers of Jesus, and self-righteous Pharisees. Now, I think, is there a table on your outline that shows this? Okay. So, outwardly, both of these groups would do good things, right? You'd see both of them you know, loving their neighbors, doing good things in the community, that sort of thing, helping old ladies across the street. But then when you get deeper than behavior, you start to see a distinction because true Jesus followers love Jesus. They're the real deal, and they're resting in Christ's accomplishment for them, whereas Pharisees love themselves. They're hypocrites and imposters. They're posers, and they're relying on their own accomplishments. True Christians, true followers of Jesus are others conscious, need-oriented, and they're into secret service, serving other people without needing to be noticed, but not so the Pharisees. They are image conscious, always working on polishing their image so they look good. They're appearance-oriented. How am I coming across here? How are people taking me here? And they are looking to be seen, seen of men. True Christians appreciate being recognized for the good things that they've done, but they don't need it. They find satisfaction just in the act of serving others. But Pharisees, oh no, they need to be recognized 
for the good things they've done, and their satisfaction comes from getting noticed. True Christians feel grateful just to be in the family of God and to be saved by Christ. Pharisees feel superior. They think they're better than others. They look down on other people. Like I said, they think the world would be a better place if everyone was more like them. True Christians resist comparing themselves with others. They realize the ground is level at the foot of the cross, but Pharisees are always comparing themselves with other people. Every time they walk into a room, they're thinking about the pecking order and where am I and how can I elevate myself. True believers who've been changed by Christ focus on need meeting, meeting other people's needs, but Pharisees are all about fault finding, pointing out other people's flaws and faults so they can feel better about themselves. True Christians own their sins. They seek Jesus' smile in their lives. They have Jesus. Pharisees hide their sins. They're good at it. They crave approval from other people, especially the right people, the elite people, and they need Jesus. True Jesus followers are genuinely born again, but self-righteous Pharisees may not yet be truly converted to Christ. I wonder... You look at that table. Do you see yourself in there at all? Well, as we come to Romans chapter 2, Paul wants to jolt self-righteous Pharisees out of their smugness. He wants to turn their critical fault-finding of others back on them. And he wants to bring them to the point where they, they say, Paul, Paul, give us the gospel too. We need the gospel just like the the pagan Gentiles do. We need Jesus as much as they do. Please give us the gospel too. That's where he wants to go. And he sets out to accomplish this by making some indictments. Some indictments of self-righteous, older brother, Pharisee types. So here's the first one. Self-righteous hypocrites are actually incriminating themselves when they pass judgment on others. So here's how chapter 2 begins. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Remember in chapter 1, he said all of the pagans had no excuse. Now he's looking at religious people. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, talking about judging people, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn who? Yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What do we call that? You're judging others, but you're doing the same thing. Hypocrisy, right. He says, you're doing the same things. And he doesn't tell us exactly what these Pharisee Pharisee types, what kinds of sins they were committing while pointing the finger at others. We can surmise that they were probably the less visible sins, the sins of the heart. And in that sin list of chapter 1 that we looked at last week, there were those kinds of sins, envy, strife, pride, ruthlessness, arrogance. You know, Pharisee types are good at looking good on the outside, looking respectable on the outside while harboring sin in their hearts. Or when it comes to the sexual sins that were so featured in, in Romans 1, maybe these guys weren't committing the outward acts of sexual deviancy, but inside Perhaps they were full of lust and sexual fantasizing, which Jesus called adultery of the heart. Or maybe they actually were committing all of those sins, but just covering it up well. Whatever the case, these people were hypocrites, condemning other people 
for doing things that they themselves were doing. And so Paul says by their act of judging other people, they were actually incriminating themselves. You've heard this. They were pointing the accusing finger at other people while failing to realize what? The three fingers that were pointing back at them. And when I think of that kind of hypocrisy, I think of a character in the Old Testament in the Bible by the name of David, King David. You remember his story. He committed adultery with a woman. He observed an unclothed woman taking a bath. He said, I want her. He called for her. He slept with her. He committed adultery with, with this woman who was married to another man. And then, to cover it up, he arranged for her husband to be killed. So what did he do? Essentially, he stole another man's wife for himself. And he thought he thought he had it all covered up so nice, wrapped up in a bow. But God knew. God knew. And I want to remind all of us that when we think we've got it all covered up and concealed, guess what? God knows everything. Everything. And God knew what David had done, and God sent his prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan came to David one day, and he, he said, hey, I got, a, I got a, a, an instance you need to know about. He told him about a wealthy man, a rich man in his kingdom who had needlessly really stolen a lamb from a, a poor neighbor's flock. And he told David about that story, and David heard it, and his anger was kindled and inflamed when he heard this story, and he shouted out, well, that man should die for doing such a thing like that. And Nathan looked at David, put his finger right in his face, and he said, you are the man. You did that. You stole another man's wife. Judging somebody else for committing a sin while being guilty of doing that same sin yourself, that's hypocrisy. And David's harsh judgment of that rich man was actually self-incriminating, wasn't it? He was actually the one who deserved to die. When I think of hypocrisy in our day, I, I just... I mean, isn't hypocrisy the chief reason that so many people in this world have such a low regard for Christians and Christianity and church and our Lord? and can so easily dismiss our faith? I mean, as Christians, we're often seen as being judgmental anyway. And then when some well-known Christian, some Christian celebrity pastor, or even a Christian person that they know gets exposed to be a hypocrite, it just turns them off even further, and it stokes their cynicism. And I find myself often praying, God, help me see and turn away from my hypocrisy. Help us see and turn away from our hypocrisy so as not to cast reproach on the name of Christ. And so to these older brother types, self-righteous Pharisees who loved pointing out faults in other people, Paul in essence says, you need to remember the words of the Lord Jesus who once said, do not judge or you will be judged with the same measure you use to judge others, you yourself will be judged. And I would offer that some people in the political arena these days would be wise to take that counsel to heart, don't you think? So that's his first indictment. You're incriminating yourself. His second indictment is actually a warning. 
It's found in verses 2 and 3. Let me read it for us. We know, he says, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, such sins. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? So here's this warning. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will somehow be exempt from God's future judgment against sin. Exempt. And there were many Jews in that day, many religious Jews, who believed that they were in a privileged class, an elite group, that their status as the chosen people of God would basically exempt them from any judgment that they might deserve because of their sin or hypocrisy. They were smug in their self-assurance that all was going to be well with them because they were children of Abraham. But Paul here blows that all up, doesn't he? He undercuts that misconception. I'm sure it rankled them. But that wasn't confined to that day. There are people in our day who believe that they're going to miss, they're going to avoid God's judgment. Maybe it's because they grew up in a strong Christian family that their parents were Christians and they're thinking, I'm just going to ride my parents' coattails in to the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe they think that because they were baptized as an infant that that somehow ensures their eternal salvation and that they'll miss God's judgment. Or maybe they're relying on doing the sacraments, that that's what's going to save them. Or maybe they think, they, you know, I live in America, so I'm a Christian, so certainly God's going to let me in. Other people might feel confident that they're in good shape because they think God grades on the curve. And they're convinced that if you're basically a good person and you, know, you don't commit heinous crimes and you're not like Hitler or Saddam Hussein or something, you know, you're further up the scale than those guys, then, then he'll let you in because you're basically a good person. Like God grades on the curve based on how you compare with your neighbor or your coworker. But as we've been reminded in our three memory verses from Romans so far, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So all are guilty before God. Everyone deserves death and judgment. No one gets a pass. No one is exempt not even self-righteous moralists who think they're pretty good with God and that God's pretty good with them. It's as if Paul says, hey, Mr. Pharisee, or Mrs. Pharisee, you go around like some kind of judge handing out verdicts on other people, condemning them for their faults. You know what you're doing? You're playing God. You're usurping. You're acting like God. Only God is God. You need to let God be God, and God sees and knows all things, including what you do, Mr. Pharisee, in secret. He even knows what you fantasize about. He knows your hypocrisy, so don't make the mistake of thinking that you're going to somehow be exempt from God's wrath at the judgment. You're deluded if you think that. That's a serious error that has eternal consequences. This is a pretty severe warning, isn't it, to older brother types? We should probably all take it to heart. And that was followed up by a third point of his indictment here, contained in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. And the indictment is this, hard-hearted hypocrites who refuse to repent are in deep trouble with God, listen, 
for abusing his kindness. Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And I got to thinking about this, and the predominant thought that came into my mind as I studied this this week is, you know what? God is so kind to sinners. God is so kind and merciful and patient and forbearing with sinful people. Is he not? Doesn't the Bible say he causes his son to rise on the just and the unjust? He is so kind. The problem is that people get used to his kindness. They get accustomed to his mercy. They take it for granted. Instead of letting God's kindness lead them to repentance as was intended, instead they let it lead them to a sense of entitlement, of expecting it. I think of the guy in our town who is far from God. The guy living here in our city who who doesn't think much about God, really. Who woke up this morning to another day. I said he woke up this morning. God's kindness to him. And he woke up not in the eternal flames of hell where he should rightly be, But he woke up in his nice home here in Columbus, Ohio. With his heart still beating. Pastor Steve, I thought the wages of sin is death. It is. But this guy woke up in his home in Columbus. His heart's still beating. He goes downstairs and brews a cup of coffee. He checks the news. Gives not a single thought to the fact that God is being good and kind and merciful to him by not judging him today, not giving him what he has earned for his sins. Maybe he goes to B-dubs and has some wings. God's kindness. Maybe his team wins today. God's kindness. Maybe tonight he enjoys intimacy with his wife. That's God's kindness to him. Maybe his 16-year-old daughter doesn't get in an accident today. That's God's kindness to him. He's not entitled to all that. The wages of sin is death. It's God's kindness. His multiplied kindness to him, which should prompt him to what? Thank God. And it should prompt him to call out to God and receive the provision that God has made for him for salvation through Jesus. But I ask even those of you who are Christians, who thinks like that in this entitled culture that we live in? You know, if we did, we'd be more grateful people, wouldn't we? And we wouldn't be much mad at God for stuff anymore. We'd wake up in the morning and we'd say, wow, thank you, God. Another day. Another day of grace for me. I don't deserve it. And no matter what happens this day, it's a good day because just being alive, I'm getting way more than I deserve. You know what I think? I think most modern 
where postmodern people actually feel like they're getting a raw deal in life. Like they deserve better than what they're getting, but not people whose eyes have been opened to the truth of what we really deserve and what we're actually getting from the hand of God. Seeing life that way, looking through those lenses, will revolutionize your outlook. There's a bunch of depression that it, it would cure, I think, if you truly get this. And note that God's kindness to mankind is intended to lead them somewhere and not to like this smugness that I'm going to be safe from judgment, but it's meant to lead me to repentance. And you know what? It's repenting. It's turning away from sin and turning to Christ, repenting that's going to keep our hearts from becoming hardened towards God. Amen? Can I challenge you today to become the chief repenter in your family? Like the top repenter. I would like to be the chief repenter among our pastors here. Because I have more to repent of than any of them. It's repenting daily, ongoing, that's going to keep our hearts from hardening. It's owning our sin, our judgmental pride, our hypocrisy, our Phariseeism, that's going to keep our hearts soft towards God and assure us of our safe standing with Him. And so Paul warns these older brother Pharisee types that they're going to end up in deep, deep trouble with God if they continue to abuse God's kindness and take it for granted, and continue to judge other people, and resist repenting of their hypocrisy, which is so grievous to God. These are strong words. And you know what? I've discovered it takes strong words to get through to proud religious folks. And then his fourth and final point of his indictment, found in verses 6 through 11, and it's this. God's future judgment of everybody will be completely fair and impartial, and based on each person's works. Let me read this for us. Verse 6, He, this is God, will render to each one according to his works. There it is. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath, and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also to the Greek, that's the Gentile, that's everybody in the world. But, verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul already revealed one basis upon which God will judge people, and that's the amount of truth that they've been given. The amount of light that they've been given. All humans are accountable to receive the light they've been given and ask for more. But here he reveals two more aspects of God's judgment. It's going to be based on people's works, how they live their lives here on the earth, and it will be impartial, which means God does not play favorites. And this is key to understanding the coming judgment of God. God, he says, is not swayed by somebody's popularity, how popular they are. He's not swayed by their movie star looks. So he's unlike us, right? He's not swayed by someone's personal magnetism or net worth. He's not swayed by their clever 
justifications for why they lived the way they did. He's not like us. Nor will he favor you know, Jews over Gentiles just because of their national identity. No, no. God is able to be completely objective. And he will be. Let's be sure to not misread Paul here when he talks about who's going to gain eternal life and who's going to experience the wrath of God's judgment. Because you could read verses 7 through 10, and some have, and think that Paul here is teaching salvation by works. Because he talks about doing good and doing well. And if that's what he is teaching, salvation by works, then he would have a mental disorder we might call schizophrenia, right? Because in the book of Romans, he goes to great pains in this letter to declare that salvation is not by works. Like in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, but to him who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. No, I think it's better to see this reference here to doing good as the evidence, the result, the proof, the fruit of true faith which is a lifestyle of good works, which we like to call love works around here. As Martin Luther said, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. That's the proof, the evidence of it. No, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10, which will be the natural fruit of having the life of God in us as Christians. And so Paul says that God will impartially and individually judge everyone one day according to their works. And I hear some people say, when? I want to be ready. When? Where? Where's it going to be? And uh, we've done other sermons on this, but my short answer to that question is that the unbeliever's works will be judged at what is called the great white throne judgment of God at some point in the future. And an accurate evaluation of all of their works will be made by God and it will reveal that they were never truly transformed by faith in the gospel of Jesus. That they refused to trust in Christ while they were here on the earth. So their works or lack thereof will confirm that they weren't saved. How about the works of true believers? Well, they will be evaluated at another event called the Bema Seat Judgment, which really was, I like to call it, the ultimate award ceremony for Christians. Also yet future. Where every single thing that Jesus' people did for Jesus is going to be recognized by Him and rewarded by Him. I've done a whole sermon on that, several of them. You can look that up online and check that out. The Bema Seat Judgment. Awards ceremony for Christians. Some new heroes are going to be recognized that day, I believe. So Paul here, in effect, is saying to these self-righteous, hypocritical, older brother type Pharisees, understand, Mr. Pharisee, Mrs. Pharisee, there are only two ultimate destinies for everybody. And which one a person experiences depends upon whether their professed faith was validated by a lifestyle that sought the right things. Understand that genuine saving trust in Jesus Christ 
will inevitably produce a lifestyle of love works. But faulty faith will produce no such transformation, and those whose lives on earth do not reflect their Lord will face fury and wrath and tribulation at the final judgment. So this is very sobering stuff, isn't it? And there's more to come. Well, this last week I came across a book, and the book had a title that, that just kind of reached out and grabbed me. It was very intriguing, and the title of the book was this, 12 Steps for the Recovering Pharisee. 12-step program, didn't know one existed. Finding the Grace to Live Unmasked by an author named John Fisher. And in the introduction to the book, here's what the author wrote. He said, my use of the recovery model in this book is admittedly somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I'm not expecting Pharisee recovery groups to spring up all over the country, though it might not be such a bad idea. Nor am I expecting people to see these steps as some sort of methodology through which they can achieve the permanent eradication of pride and superiority. I'm more interested in borrowing the recovery model as a way of unmasking and potentially freeing us from the intoxication of spiritual pride and prejudice that continually lures believers away from the grace and gratitude and life of astonishment that the Spirit of God has for us. Life of astonishment. I love that. I love that. And then he goes on to actually list 12 steps to recovery for Pharisees. And I'm going to read through them, and they're going to come up on the screen. So see if you can identify with any of these, okay? Twelve steps for recovery for Pharisees. Step one, we admit that our single most unmitigated pleasure is to judge other people. It is so fun to make others feel bad so that we look good. Step two, we came to believe that our means of obtaining greatness is to make everyone else lower than ourselves in our own mind. Three, we realize that we detest mercy being given to others who, unlike us, haven't worked for it and don't deserve it. Step four, turning point here. We have now decided that we don't want to get what we deserve after all, and we don't want anyone else to either. Five, we will cease all attempts to apply teaching and rebuke to anybody but ourselves. Six, we're ready to have God. God. Remove all of these defects of attitude and character. Seven, we embrace the belief that we are and will always be experts at sinning. Step eight, we're looking closely at the lives of famous men and women of the Bible who turned out to be ordinary sinners like us, like Abraham and Moses and so forth. Step nine, we're seeking through prayer and meditation to make a conscious effort to consider others better than ourselves. Step 10, we embrace the state of astonishment as a permanent and glorious reality. 11, we choose to rid ourselves of any attitude that is not bathed in gratitude. 12, having had a spiritual awakening. As the result of these steps, we will try to carry this message to others who think that Christians are better than everyone else. Any recovering Pharisees in this room? I am. Am I the only one? I hope not. I'm Steve. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Hi, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to our recovery group. <laughs> In step 12, he talked about having a spiritual awakening. See that? 
What he's speaking of is an encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ through his gospel. It's a spiritual conversion that comes to the heart of anyone who truly repents of their sin and their self-righteousness and places their full faith, like transfers the full weight of their trust to Jesus and to his sacrifice on the cross for their sins. It comes to anybody who believes that God then raised Jesus from the dead and then who humbly calls out to a living Jesus to save them. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's when the transformation begins. And it's all possible because of God's great love for us. Our memory verse for this week says it so well. It's a favorite of mine. We're learning these verses of the famous Romans Road to salvation, and the one we find ourselves at today is Romans 5.8. And I want us to say it out loud together. It's in the ESV. Maybe you've memorized it in another translation, but let's, let's say this version out loud together. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were still lovable or lovely while we were steeped in our sin, whether it's younger brother, prodigal, rebellion type sin, or older brother, proud, judgmental, Pharisee type sin, God loved us. How do you think the father in that story would have responded if the older brother had repented? Do you think he would have met with the same joy, that kid, as the younger rebel did? Do you think the father would have said, yes, son, thrown his arms around him, taken him into the house, said, look, my other prodigal has come home too. He was prodigal in his heart. But now he's in the family again. I guarantee it would have happened that way because God's love is so vast and so indiscriminate that he can love rebel prodigals and self-righteous judgmental Pharisees the same. His love is so deep, so wide. I want us each to do a little bit of spiritual self-assessment as we finish up today. Can we do that? Could I ask you to take a little self-assessment? Got some statements here. Maybe you identify with any of these first. I identify more. Maybe this is your story. I identify more with the younger brother in the story, the rebel, the rule breaker, the prodigal. Maybe that reflects your story more. Just note that. Put a little check there. But maybe you would say, no, no, for me, I identify more with the older brother in the story, the good kid, the self-righteous rule keeper, Pharisee. Maybe like me, you, you'll be willing to admit this next one. I'd have to say that I am a recovering Pharisee. Just admit it. Humbling, but good. And I would add this to that one. Are your Pharisee tendencies, are your older Brother, judgmental tendencies, just residual from the old life that's still hanging on, clinging to you? Or is God saying to you, you need to be saved? You've never had that spiritual conversion, that encounter with the living Lord Jesus that was just talked about. You need to be saved. What, what's God saying to you about that? How about this next one? How many of you would say, I need to receive God's love for me, which he demonstrated by sending Christ to die for my sins? Like, I need that for me personally, for myself. I, I'm, I'm not yet a believer, but I'm 
becoming one today, right now. Uh, This next one's true for me. I need to live my life more in a continual state of astonishment at God's goodness to me. I'm getting way more than I deserve. I'm so grateful. But lastly, as I got to thinking about how we do this life thing together as Christians, it is together. It's the Christian life was not meant to be a solo activity. It's a team sport. And some of you might think, well, I would benefit from participating in a small group where people are seeking to be genuine with each other and take their masks off and be real and live out what it means to really follow Jesus. And I don't know of anybody better at linking people up with a good fit group than our own Jay Fireball. And I, and I would encourage, if this is you, to take some initiative and reach out and say, I need to get into a group. I need to be doing this thing with others. Which is a great thing for Pharisees to do. All right. I want to finish by praying for all of the older brother types, Pharisees, recovering Pharisees in the room. So raise your hands again, if you would. If you're like me. All right. Lord Jesus, you see our hands. It's humbling to raise our hands. We don't like being humbled. We like pointing out other people's flaws. But we humbly lift our hands today and say we are, we fit the profile. We do feel superior to others at times. We are judgmental fault finders. Lord, we hate to admit it, but it's in our hearts. Sometimes we enjoy cutting other people down so we make ourselves look better. And God, we are here today to say that is so wicked. It is so evil. We're no better than the pagans of this world. Lord, our self-righteousness is an affront to you. But because you love us too, you don't just love prodigals, you love Pharisees. Because you love us too, would you melt our hearts this day, Lord? Would you cause us to see how needy we are, how much we need Jesus at the, in the driver's seat of our lives? Lord, for any in this room who the truth about them is they're not genuinely saved. They haven't had that spiritual transformation, Lord. May you bring that to them in this moment. Would you grant them repentance? Would you grant them faith to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins? Yeah, their proud judgmentalism. Would you save them this day, Lord? We thank you for your grace. Help us to live in a continual state of astonishment how kind you are to guilty sinners. Lord, we who are in your family, talk about kindness, we have received it over and more abundant than we could ever think or imagine. May we live a grateful life. I pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.